Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. As I was saying, there are four senses to Scripture. The basic sense is the literal sense, that which was intended by the author, the human author, when he wrote the text. The three other senses are called the spiritual senses, and the first one being the analogical, by analogy, and that one applies to Christ. The second one is the anagogical, leading to, towards the end, and that applies to the church in the end times. And the third sense is the moral that applies to me today in my life. And we've gone through an overview of those four senses last week. Today what I want to do is focus on the literal sense. And that one is so important because it is, a misunderstanding the literal sense is at the root cause of so many, so many errors in interpretation of Scripture. What is the literal sense? The literal sense is the meaning expressed immediately and directly by the words of the sacred writers. Immediately and directly by the words of the sacred writers. Think of it this way. When St. Paul was writing a letter, say, to Philemon or to Timothy, what did he have in mind? Do you think St. Paul had in mind that he's writing a letter that would be part of the canonical writings of the church that would be read one day by Americans living in San Diego? That was the last thing he had in mind. He was writing a letter expounding on the faith, right? But the Holy Spirit knew better, right? So when St. Paul showed up in heaven, there was a big surprise waiting for him. His words were going to carry a much deeper meaning than he ever thought they would. Right? The literal meaning, therefore, is what St. Paul intended when he was writing it. Now, that seems simple on the surface, but really it's not. I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why it's not simple. St. Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas, tells us that the literal sense is divided into the proper literal sense and the improper literal sense. All right? Proper and improper. The proper literal sense pertains to the native and obvious meaning of the words. And the improper pertains to the transfer, derived, or figurative use of the words. What do we mean by all this? It sounds very complicated, but in reality it's very simple, at least to understand the differences between the two. Consider, for instance, when the Lord calls James and John sons of thunder. Remember, it's in the Gospel of St. Luke. He was walking through, um, he, was, uh, he was going through Samaria, and there is one town who refused to receive him. And so, James and John asked him if he would want them to call for fire to come down from heaven and consume the town. And Jesus rebuked them, and, they, and he said they were called sons of thunder. Now, the proper literal sense would be the meaning of the words sons of thunder. We know what a thunder is. We know what sons are. But in that specific instance, we all can tell that Jesus did not mean it in the proper literal sense. 
He didn't mean that James and John were actually fathered by a thunder. Right? So it's the improper literal sense, the sense derived from the words. He was saying something about their character, how they could just blow up. How could they get so taken by their anger? That's what he was saying. So sons of thunder is the literal sense in an improper way. You're with me? Any questions on that? Now, if you think about it, thinking ahead of what we're going to see in this talk, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, well, when is it a proper literal sense and when is it improper? How can we tell? Let me give you an example of something we're going to see in a talk, hence, the, the creation narrative in Genesis. In Genesis, it tells us that God created the world in what seems to be six days. Those who stick to the proper literal sense will take it to mean that God effectively created the world in six times 24 hours. Right? The question is, do we interpret, do we read that text in its proper literal sense or improper? What does they mean in this context? How can we tell? You understand? That is one of the problem of the literal sense. It's not that I can just sit down, read the text, and I'll figure out what it says. It's not that simple, right? So to perceive the literal sense of a verse, one need only know the meaning of the words and the grammatical use in a sentence. That's the simple thing we have to do. You, you basically, you need to read English to perceive the proper literal sense. But that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Because as we've seen, does the proper literal sense derive the intended meaning or is it improper? A more modern example that I gave last time, if you had someone who took everything literalistically come to live with you and you told him, let's hit the road, he'd ask you, where's the hammer? Right? Or give me a break. He might go buy you a break and bring it and give it to you. Well, you just asked for a break, didn't you? He's taking everything in the proper literal sense. He's seeing the improper literal sense implied by the use of the colloquialism. Right? And language is filled with those expressions. Filled with those expressions. So today, at work, someone mentioned to me something was, what did he say? He said, uh, there was a too much, what, far left field. Or something like that. He supposedly was making reference to baseball. Being ignorant of baseball, I had absolutely no clue what he was talking about. I just imagined a field and something being left of it. And so it made no sense to me. Now, the point then that I'm making is that the proper literal sense does not require the context to be understood because you can derive it from the language. But the improper literal sense does. Not enough to read the words. You need to understand the context in which these people were living. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Or you can get it to say whatever you want. Just as I did from that image. All right. Another example I'm going to give you, and there'll be plenty of examples in Scripture. In Matthew 1-2, we see, we see Matthew writing and saying, Abraham begot Isaac. And then in Corinthian, in 1 Corinthian chapter 4, verse 15, 1 Corinthian 4, 15, uh, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, by the gospel, I have begotten you. Both are using the word, the verb, to, to beget. But Matthew is using it in its proper literal sense, physically begetting. Paul is using it in an improper fashion. And by the way, if you have uh, friends who are Protestant who ask you, why do you call a man father? Tell them because St. Paul tells us to do so. That verse that I just quoted you is a good example to use. He's saying, but because I begot you, which means I'm your dad in the spirit. I'm your father. All right? In his encyclical letter, Divino Aflante Spiritu, Pope Leo XIII 
points out to interpreters of the sacred books that their foremost and greatest endeavor should be to discern and define clearly that sense of the biblical words which is called literal. What Pope Leo XIII is saying to all of us is that unless we really understand the literal sense, everything we build on top of it, especially in the moral sense, the sense that applies to us, can be wrong and very dangerous because it leads us astray. All right? The foundation is a literal sense. We have to understand it. Without it, we can get Scripture to say anything we want Scripture to say. Now, all the truths that are necessary for faith are expressed or implied in a literal sense. Everything is contained in a literal sense, either directly or indirectly. And so the spiritual sense shows it up. It sort of highlights it, brings it up. But it's already in a literal sense. The, the spiritual senses do not invent a meaning that is not already present in the literal sense. It just brings it up. So the literal sense is paramount. Very critical for us to have a sound reading of Scripture. Furthermore, that truth is expressed or implied in the literal sense of sacred Scripture or in sacred tradition. And I'll show you why tradition is so important. How many of you have had to deal with the question, why do you, why do you have to rely on tradition? All you need is the Bible. How many of you face that problem? Okay. If you haven't, you will. Living in the United States, you cannot avoid it. All right. Now, what I want to do is deal with one proposition that is so common in the United States. It's very common here. And explain to you why it just does not hold. Here's the proposition. In order for me to understand the, literal, the, the, the sense of Scripture, in order for me to understand Scripture, all I have to do is read the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit to help me understand. How many of you have seen that before? How many of you think that is applicable? You've heard that before, right? Now where does that come from? Let's talk about where does that come from first. That proposition comes from the American way of life. We are very much proactive individuals who want to do stuff, and we wanted to do it our way. So whatever it is, we'll get on with the task, and we'll just get it done. And we, are demo we believe in democracy, and therefore we take democracy and we map it to the Bible. Everybody should have equal access to Scripture. Okay? Everybody should have equal access to Scripture, therefore all you need is you the Holy Spirit, and the Bible, and you're set to go. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a reasonable proposition. After all, why wouldn't God do that? Right? I, I mean, I really want to understand His Word, so why doesn't He just illuminate my, my mind for me to understand Scripture? However, that proposition starts to break down quickly when you replace the Bible by taxes. Anyone here is convinced that in order for you to figure out how much taxes you have to pay, you take the tax law for 2005, you invoke the Holy Spirit, and you figure it out. Now, wait a minute. This is serious. Why wouldn't the Holy Spirit help us understand the tax law? Is it beyond Him? Is the tax law so complicated that even the Holy Spirit can't understand it? Or why is it that if I had to make, to bake a, a dinner that I've never done before, why don't I just pick the recipe and have at it and invoke the Holy Spirit to help me cook it and make it taste the way it's supposed to? Why is it that in every area of our life, we rely on others to help us, but when it comes to Scripture, we can do it by ourselves. Do you see how odd this is? How many of you, if you ever, God forbid, got yourself into an accident and you needed to claim money, how many of you would say, I'm good, I'm just going to pick up the book of law on insurance, read it, and then represent myself and defend my case. 
In every single aspect of our lives, we rely on people to help us understand. Those who we consider to be some sort of an authority. But when it comes to Scripture, all I need is me, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. Now I'm going to show you why that doesn't work. I'm going to show you why it doesn't work from Scripture. By the way, before I do so, the approach that says, I'm going to pick up the Bible, I'm going to read it, invoke the Holy Spirit, and get me to understand it, works for the moral sense. For the sense of Scripture that applies to me today. With one caveat, the moral sense builds on the literal sense. If you don't get the literal sense right, chances are you're going to get the moral sense wrong. Okay? So once you have a good, firm grasp of what the literal sense is, then you can venture in understanding Scripture for you today in your daily life. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't a lot of cases where you can just pick up the Bible, read the passage, and it will talk to you, and it will be right. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. It does. But you can't be sure of it every single time. All right. One more caveat. Generally speaking, as I said, you can't just ask the Holy Spirit to come explain everything to you. However, there are cases where this did happen. I want to mention those before I go on. St. Catherine of Siena. Catherine of Siena is a doctor of the church. And when she was young and illiterate, the Lord gave her infused knowledge of Scripture. So that when somebody read the text to her, because she could not read, she knew what the text meant. In fact, she was so good at it that one day she exclaimed, I understand everything my little Polito is talking about. She called St. Paul her little Polito. Leave it to an Italian woman. St. Catherine of Siena is absolutely huge. I mean, unless you read what... So there's a whole dialogue between her and the Lord, where the Lord appeared to her and then conversed with her. St. Catherine of Siena is a great saint of the church, and I do recommend you read either her, the, the, the conversations or you read about her. Get familiar with her. But if we're not St. Catherine of Siena, we cannot presume that we receive infused knowledge from the Lord. We have to roll up our sleeves and work. So what are the challenges to the proposition that all we need is read the scripture, call the Holy Spirit, and then we're done? I'm going to give you some of the challenges. Um, this is, by the way, called the Sola Scriptura thesis. It's by scripture alone. All I need is scripture. Just get my scripture, my Bible, I read it, and I'm going to be saved. Right? Not that simple. First of all, the first refutation to this thesis is from Scripture itself. Scripture makes several references to extra-scriptural sources. Scripture makes several references to extra-scriptural sources. What does that mean? It means that in Scripture, there are references made to sources which are not in Scripture. Therefore, Scripture is not self-contained. Do you understand what I'm saying? Hmm? Not everything you need is in Scripture. So first, let's take an example of, a, of an intra-scriptural source, a source that is in Scripture. Consider, for instance, Matthew 2.15. Matthew 2.15, I alluded to that last week. Out of Egypt I called my son. This text in St. Matthew is a direct quotation from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea 11, verse 1 out of Egypt I called my son. So, St. Matthew is taking the quotation in Hosea for, in, in its literal sense, and now he is applying to it, the analog, uh, uh, the, he is applying it by analogy to Jesus Christ. Hosea was talking about Israel, Matthew was talking about the coming of Jesus out of Egypt. Hosea. Hosea. H-O-S-E-A. Hosea, yeah. So that's an example of an intra-biblical reference. There's many of those. However, consider the following. Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. 
In Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, St. Matthew says, He shall be called a Nazorean. That word is N-A-Z-O-R-E-A-N. N-A-Z-O-R-E-A-N. To fulfill what was said by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene to fulfill what was said by the prophets. That's a quotation from St. Matthew. Now, the word Nazarene appears 11 times in Scripture. And I'll list those quickly for you. Matthew 2.23, Matthew 26.71, John 18.5, John 18.7, John 19.19, Acts 2.2, Acts 3.6, Acts 6.14, Acts 22.8, Acts 24.5, and Acts 26.9. The point, all references to Nazarene are in the New Testament. Not once does the word appear in the Old Testament. It's not there. Now, the word Nazarite appears 12 times in the singular and 11, time, 11 times in chapter 6 of the book of Numbers and once in the first book of Samuel, in which Hannah tells her husband that when once the child is weaned, I will take him to appear before the Lord and to remain there forever. I will offer him as a perpetual Nazarite. Now, this is the closest you can get to the quotation from St. Matthew, but nowhere in the Old Testament is there any reference to the Christ being a Nazarene. Can't find that. So obviously, yet he says, St. Matthew says, let me read to you the whole quote from that verse, he says, he went and dwelt in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken, what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. And you check the entire Bible. Nowhere does it say that the Christ will live in Nazareth so that he will be called a Nazarene. Okay? Now, for those of you who know a little bit of Hebrew, Nazareth comes from the root, wor verb, root word netzer. And netzer means branch. Means branch. And it might, sound, it, might, it might not sound like a big deal until you realize that... Um, there is, in fact, in Isaiah, a quotation relating to the tree of Jesse, the root of Jesse, which will sprout out a new branch. And the branch became a messianic title, a title for the Messiah. All right? Yes. That's it, Nazareth. It's the same. You got Nasra is the same word from Nazar, which is, in Hebrew, branch. All right? So... Um, the point here, though, is this is one reference where there is a... St. Matthew is referencing the prophets, and you will find it anywhere in Scripture. Hence, if you read it, when you read this, this verse, and you try to understand the literal sense, so that what had been spoken through the prophets, you, are, you have no option but to recognize that St. Matthew is drawing upon a source which was spoken but not written. And so the first rule of the proper understanding of the literal sense is that you have to take into account not just Scripture, but holy tradition. Without holy tradition, Scripture is not comprehensible. So holy tradition is not something we Catholics just tacked on to make this whole thing look pretty. It is absolutely necessary, otherwise we cannot understand Scripture. The second reference I will give you is from Jude, the first chapter of the letter of St. Jude. In it he said, he writes, Yet the archangel Michael, when he argued with the devil in a dispute over the body of Moses, did not venture to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, but said, May the Lord rebuke you. That's, by the way, we get the, May the Lord rebuke you, we humbly pray from the letter of St. Jude. So St. Jude is saying that after Moses died, remember in Exodus, he died and he couldn't get into the Holy Land, the archangel Michael fought with the devil over the body of Moses. You go back and you read the Old Testament and nowhere will you find any reference to any battle between St. Michael the archangel and the devil over the body of Moses. What is he getting that from? Well, St. Jude is actually quoting the book of Enoch. Enoch was an ancestor of Abraham who lived before the flood. 
and he is one of two folks from the Old Testament that was assumed into heaven, body and soul. He didn't die. And around the time of the Lord, there were a number of books attributed to Enoch, one of which, and it's called the Book of Enoch. And in it, there's a reference made to a battle between St. Michael and the devil. St. Jude is quoting from an apocryphal work. This is not recognized as inspired work, neither by the Jews nor by the Christians. Yet he quotes from it. He quotes from it. So it's not enough, it is not enough for us to understand Scripture to limit ourselves only to the text. We have to understand what they read, what they believed, what they understood right around the time when it was written. Because that gives you the key. Without it, the text is obscured. The first reference comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. In this passage, St. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was the Christ. Okay? He's commenting on one episode that happened in Exodus where the people were thirsty and God instructed Moses to strike a rock with his staff and the rock gave water. Now he adds something rather interesting. He said, the rock followed them. I wish I was there. I'd like to see how a rock follows people. And what does the rock do? It just hovers and then floats. And how does this thing move? Right? But St. Paul... Observe, St. Paul writes it without even commenting on it, without having need to explain it. He assumes people know that the rock followed. He adds that that rock was Christ. There you see the analogical meaning. He's taking the literal sense and now applying it to Christ. And we're going to see more of that later. And you see how important this is, especially in its relationship to the Eucharist. But for now, where does he get the fact that the rock followed them? It's written nowhere. It is part of the holy tradition of the Jews, which we just carried over. You understand? So not only do you have to read scripture, not only do you have to understand the context, not only do you have to be aware of the books they read, you also have to be aware of their, of their oral, verbal, oral tradition that they carried with them. By the, by the way, the episode that he references happened in Exodus 17, verse 6, 12, and uh, chapter 33, verse 21 and 22. As these three examples show, Scripture does not hesitate to call upon extra-scriptural references. And that is because Scripture is inscribed in the larger context of tradition. Alright? So now we need to look at the weight of tradition. The weight of tradition. 2 Tess 2.15 In the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 15, St. Paul writes, and he commands. It's a command coming from him. Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours. Notice, St. Paul does not instruct them to hold fast to Scripture. He instructs them to hold fast to the traditions that they were taught either by word of mouth or by a letter. That is key. That's the key. Not everything has been put down in writing. Much of it has been transmitted orally in the liturgy, in the prayers of the church, in the writings of the saints. And we have to consider the whole sum of it for us to really understand what the literal sense means. Okay? Now, as if this is not enough, there are additional problems that render the notion that all we need is Scripture even more difficult. There are some apparent contradictions in Scripture, texts that seem to contradict each other. Now, these contradictions are resolvable. You could resolve them, but not with Scripture alone. I'm going to give you some of those. The first one is the business of statues. So, you may have encountered some Protestant friends that would tell you, why do you have statues? How come you have statues? Right? 
They want, they want no statues and no images and nothing. Well, you would think that they have a basis for their statement because in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, God commands and says, You shall not carve idols for yourselves in the shape of anything in the sky above, or on the earth below, or in the waters beneath the earth. So, don't carve that stuff. But then, five chapters later, Exodus 25, verse 18, God instructs Moses to make two cherubim of gold. Now, a cherubim is an angel. He's the second choir of angels, right after the seraphim. So he's instructing Moses to make two cherubim, two statues of things under the heaven of gold. Now you might, you might think, okay, but those are angels. Maybe you're allowed to have statues of angels. Where? In the first book of Kings, verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 36. 1 Kings 7, 36. We read that when Solomon built the temple of Jerusalem, he had on the surfaces of the supports and on the panels, wherever there was a clear space, cherubim, lions, and palm trees were carved, as well as wreaths all around. Well, you got a lion. Well, which is it, God? Statue or statue? If you read Scripture alone, you will not find in Scripture a passage that says, oh, the contradiction between Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 25 can be explained in the following manner. Scripture does not give you the explanation. You won't find it anywhere. You have to rely on what? On tradition and the exposition of the saints and the lives of the Christians. In a specific instance, God said, don't build statues for idols. Well, a statue or an image of our Lord or St. Ephraim are not idols. They're pointers to heaven. So those are okay. The other ones are not. Right? So we have, to do, we have to perform a moral judgment on the purpose of the statues and then understand what we have to do next. But all that stuff, all the stuff that I just said to you right now, can't be found explicitly in Scripture. You won't find it anywhere. Okay? Now you might argue to me, this is kind of easy. You can understand it with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'll give you that. You might be able to understand it on your own and figure it out without anybody's help. That's okay. Now let's consider this one. The birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 16, we read that Jacob is the father of Joseph. Alright? Jacob is the father of Joseph. But in Luke chapter 3 verse 23, we read that Eli is the father of Joseph. Jacob, Eli. Which is it? How do you reconcile both? Now, it takes a lot of hard work to do that. It's feasible. The fathers of the church did it. But not relying on Scripture. If you're interested in the solution to this one, we have it in the, in the whole series of Talk Within on St. Luke. It's complicated. It took me about, I don't know if it was one or two lectures just to go through this. My point to you, though, again, this one, I'll, I'll ask you, this is one of the exercises I want to give you, so you take those two verses next week. I want you to take Matthew 1.16 and Luke 3.23. Matthew 1.16, Luke 3.23. Read them for yourself. Sit down, close your eyes, and fervently implore the Holy Spirit to come and explain it to you. I mean it. I want you to be convinced of this, because otherwise you will not approach Scripture with the proper prudence that is due to Scripture. So I really want you to try. And when you come back, I'm going to ask you what thoughts came to your mind. The second one, in Mark chapter 2, verse 24 to 28, the situation. Jesus is walking with his disciples in the middle of a grain of a field of wheat. And they're hungry. So they pluck the wheat, and eat the grain. The Pharisees are right there watching them. And they come down on them like a death squad. Why do you let your followers pluck wheat? This is work. It's forbidden on the Sabbath. Okay? They're not allowed to work. Plucking wheat is considered as work, and you're not allowed to do that. 
Why do you let them do that? So Jesus answers. He tells them, he reminds them of an episode that happened in 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 through 6. 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 through 6. In it, he reminds them that back then David, who was hungry, went to the house of the Lord and ate of the showbread, which is only reserved to the priests. David wasn't allowed to eat it, yet he did it. Okay? I'm not going to go through the whole understanding of it, but I want to point out one detail to you, and this is the following. When Jesus is quoting the passage in Samuel, Jesus says that Abiathar was the high priest. That's what he says. Abiathar was the high priest. You go back to Samuel, read the text, you find out that in fact it was Ahimelech, Abiathar's dad, who was the high priest. Jesus says, Abiathar, in Samuel, it's Ahimelech. Now you might say, well, who cares? It's a small detail after all. Abiathar, Ahimelech, it all sounds the same anyhow. Who are those guys? Notice what you would be saying. What would you be saying if you said that? There are errors in Scripture. You'd be saying, there are errors in Scripture. If there are errors in Scripture, then one of two things must hold true. Either Scripture, all of Scripture, is not inspired, or it could not have been inspired by a good God. You see? You see the argument? By the way, there are Muslim apologists who use that, that line of argument, exactly that line of argument, to convert Christians and become Muslim. That's exactly what they're doing. And by the way, those uh, Muslim apologists did not come up with those arguments by themselves. No, they're picking them up from Catholic theologians. Judas will always be a Catholic. Remember that. Now there is a very good explanation to this. A very good explanation. It's, uh, in fact, beautiful. But, I'm not going to give it to you. I want you to take those two texts, those references I gave you, and I really want you to ask the Holy Spirit to come and explain it to you. I want you to try, and try hard. All right. The third one. The case of Jericho. In Luke 18, verse 35... In Luke 18, verse 35, we're told that as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. Now, you know that story. You know, the guy, he was yelling, and they wanted him to shut up, and he would not shut up, and then, right. His name is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. Well, how do we know his name is Bartimaeus? Because in Mark 10:46, his name is told. But listen to what Mark says. Mark says that as he was leaving Jericho, Luke says, as he was approaching Jericho, Mark says, as he was leaving Jericho. Here you go again. Which one is it? Leaving or approaching? How do you resolve that? Ask the Holy Spirit. 18.35 in Luke, 10.46 in Mark. Now, some of you may be tempted to think, well, okay, fine, we don't understand them, but those are details. I mean, after all, leaving, coming... Ahimelech, Abiathar, what is, what, you know, what's, what's the impact of my life today? Very little. Okay. Here's this, now listen to this one. The Passover. Did Jesus celebrate the Passover? Did he or did he not? Let's see what scripture says. Luke 22, 1 and following, so the first, uh, chapter 22 one and following, Matthew 26, 17. Matthew 26, 17. Mark 14, 12. The synoptics. Luke 22, one and following, Matthew 26, 17. Mark 14, 12. All tell us that Jesus celebrated the Passover. You're with me so far? You're comfortable? Okay, buckle up. In John, the Gospel of St. John, chapter 18, 28 and 1931, 1828 
1931, we learn that Jesus died on the eve of the Passover. Now, this is not details anymore. This is big. This is the foundation of our faith. The Gospels seemingly are contradicting each other. Did he or did he not celebrate the Passover? That's huge. That's huge. Again, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to come and help you understand how this works. I really want you to experience that because I want you to see that this notion that all I need to do is open up the book and read it and I'm done is very dangerous. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not telling you we should not be reading Scripture. I'm not telling you only the experts should be reading Scripture. That's not what I'm saying. We should be reading Scripture daily. However, we need to read Scripture with the mind of the church. Because only the mind of the church will allow us to understand the literal meaning, and only when we understand the literal meaning are we able to read Scripture. That's why I did not want to start tackling the book of Revelation of all books without a solid grounding in the senses of the Scripture. We need that absolutely. Now, before you decide to leave the church and become a Muslim, let me tell you that each one of those seeming paradoxes have solutions to them. But I will add that for the fourth one, Passover, not Passover, it took until the 20th century for us to have an adequate response. For 19th century, the fathers knew about the paradox. They knew something was amiss in the text. They could see it clearly. St. Jerome's side, St. Cyril's side. And what they said was, we're going to have to wait for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us how this works. Meaning what? We have to wait for the Holy Spirit to point us in the right direction. And it took till the 20th century and the wonderful work of our archaeologists for us to unlock that mystery. And hard, hard work. What is then the lesson? What's, what's, what's the important lesson out of all of this? Today, there are many, many Christians and many Catholics who put down reason. They tend to ignore reason in search for the supernatural. So, oh, I had a dream. And the dream meant this. Or, oh, the Holy Spirit inspired me. I'm going to do that. Bypassing the work that reason needs to do. The greatest gift that God gave us is our reason. That's what makes us in His image. Not how we feel, how we think. And as we study Scripture, we can't ignore the work that we have to do. We have to rub our sleeves. We have to study Scripture. We have to work at it. And God expects us to do that. So you're coming to this Bible study. That's a very good starting point. And you need to take that back home and work on your own. You read commentaries. You read the writings of the saints. You read reflections written by the saints on Scripture. And it opens up your mind and your reason to think appropriately. Today, we live in a very paradoxical age. We live in an age where so much information is available to us, yet we are the generation of Catholics that know less, that know the least about the faith. Isn't that a paradox? We live in a, in a, in a, in a century where our lives, all our, the lives of all of us sitting here, is better, is of a better quality than the lives of the kings of past times. Kings did not live the way we live. Didn't have the comfort we have. And yet, we are eaten by anxiety over what's going to happen in the future. Already there are people who are proclaiming the end of the world because a couple of earthquakes hit and a couple of big tornadoes hit or hurricanes or what have you. That's it. It's the end of the world. We live in a world that has so much, made so much scientific progress, yet we poo-poo science. We can't do that. 
as Catholics, we are called to make full and complete use of our reason, for in doing so we glorify God. And remember, if God were to give you infused knowledge, you will gain less glory than if you were to work at it by yourself. For when you work at it using your reason, you truly glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what I'm trying to tell you is this. It's not enough. It's not enough for us to come and pray. It's necessary for us to come and pray. It's not enough. Any Catholic who thinks of himself being a good Catholic, because he comes to Mass five days a week, says the Rosary every day, says the Chapter of Divine Mercy, and that's all he does, and that's it, is deluding himself. All of that is not enough. You can do all that and end up in hell. What is important is how you take all the graces that God gives you in the prayer and apply it in your moral life, in the sphere of morality. It kind of reminds me of one day I went to the Blessed... Uh, there was an exposition of Blessed Sacrament, so I decided to go and then sit before the Blessed Sacrament and pray. And here comes this lady. God bless her. It's really a fixture in the church. It's like, if, if she's not there, you think something is missing in the architecture. She's always there. So she gets into the, the chapel where the Blessed Sacrament is exposed, sits right there, there's four of us trying to pray silently, takes a rosary, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She means well, but she's not getting it. Can't do that. So what do I mean by all of this, practically speaking? I mean that prayer should, as St. Thomas Aquinas says it, St. Thomas Aquinas, as you know, is called the normal doctor of the church. He's, he's the one you go back to whenever you have a question. And he's known for his reason. He was able to dictate four secretaries at the same time. There hasn't been a mind like him. I don't know if there will ever be one like him. He's a genius. But St. Thomas Aquinas would spend two hours before the Blessed Sacrament every day. He was a great mystic, and he would levitate every single time. All right? And he said, we learn, we study, to love. So we know the truth to love the truth. And we love the truth to better know the truth. We have to use our reason and our heart together. And then we, our heart and our reason must orient our life. All right? That's the important thing. If, remember this, and this is scary, but it's true. I don't have time to expound on it, but I want you to think about it. If someone says that he has the faith, yet does not accept one, one teaching of the Catholic Church as true. One. Doesn't matter which one. Pick the one you want. Then St. Thomas says this person has no faith. He has a set of belief, beliefs that map to the faith, but he has no faith in him. Our job is to understand the teaching of the church, to accept the teaching of the church, to live the teaching of the church. This is how we show ourselves to be true Catholics. And that's important. And therefore, the, the use of our reason is essential, especially when it comes to Scripture. Now, one more point I'd like to make. We've seen, therefore, I think I made a point that it's not enough to just pick up the book and read it. All right, fine. We have to avail ourselves of the teachings of the church, of the writings of the saint, and understand it in the whole context of the tradition. Even when we do that, you would notice sometimes it's very tricky. Meaning that if I, if I just silo on one text and read it, and I don't have the whole context of the scripture in my, in my mind, I'm going to get myself in trouble. I'll give you one example. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus instructs us, and he says, But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I'm sure all of you are acquainted with that teaching, and it is possible that it kind of makes you a little bit uncomfortable. And the uncomfortableness comes from, well, how do I understand this? Do I understand it in its proper literal sense? If somebody strikes me on my left, I turn the right. Is that what it really meant literally? Or is that an improper literal sense? Well, consider, for instance, when Jesus was standing in front of the, pre, the, the, the high priest in John 18.22. So in John 18.22, they put a question to Jesus and he answers back. Why ask me? 
ask those who heard me what I said to them, they know what I said. When he had said this, one of the temple guards standing there struck Jesus and said, Is this the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? He didn't turn the right. Jesus did not turn the right cheek. You see how tricky it is? Well, I can read scripture. Oh, of course it's clear. You hit you on the left, turn the right. And we're done. Uh-uh. You have to understand it in the context of all of scripture. You can't, you can't derive a meaning of a verse that contradicts another portion of scripture. You can't do that. So it requires familiarity with scripture. Now, unfortunately, we're not all like St. Thomas Aquinas who knew scripture by heart, back and forth. So he has this panoramic view of all of scripture in his head. Okay? That's the man. Right? But we have computers. They can help us. We have concordance. We can look at the word struck and see where it appears in other words in scripture and see if, you know, we can get something out of it. They're available. Right? If you go to the Vatican and you click on Bible on the Vatican, right there and then you can say with concordance. It'll highlight all the words for you. You click on one word, and then bam, you have a list of all the verses in which that word appears. It's right there. You don't have St. Thomas, but you have computers. The next best thing. Okay? Now you might say, well, okay, but Jesus commanded us, and he's God. The command doesn't apply to him. That would be a reasonable objection. Well then, we turn to Act 22. In Acts chapter 22 and following, we have Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. And um, he says, My brothers, I have conducted myself with a perfectly conscience before God to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered his attendants to strike his mouth. And Paul said to him, Oh, well, that's so nice of you. God commanded us to turn the other cheek. Why don't you strike me again? Uh-uh. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Man. You whitewashed wall. Whitewashed wall. God will strike you. That's what he answered back. So obviously, from those two passages, we have to conclude that the saying of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, is not to be understood according to the proper literal sense, but to the improper literal sense. And hence, what is the appropriate derived meaning? that in all hardship, we must do our utmost to bear it with equanimity. That is the meaning of the words of Jesus. He's using a metaphor to convey how much endurance we must have when we are confronted with hardships. Okay? So these examples point to a fundamental truth about the literal sense. It cannot be handled by reading the scripture alone. It cannot be handled by um, focusing or zeroing on just one verse outside of its larger context. It must be understood in the context of scripture, in the context of tradition, and in the context in which the people lived. Only then would we be able to understand scripture? And now you can see our problem. You can see the tragedy of this generation. We are the second or the third or the generations who have lost touch with all the traditions that were carried through the ages. The ways our, 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 our ancestors lived, I would say, till the 30s, till the 1930s because of their lifestyle, because of the way they lived the virtues, because of the way they understood proper behavior, they had a much easier time dealing with Scripture. I'm not saying it was trivial. I'm saying it was easier for them than it is for us. And you can see how, in, as I said last time, Scripture is the face of God. And it doesn't open up to us unless we are willing to be obedient children and adjust our perspective. And that's what we have to do. So we have work to do ahead of us. We have to work yet 
understanding the Word of God. So each and every one of you, in your station in life, some of you may be very, very busy for different reasons. Others are less. You ought to, in your families, spend an hour a week, if you can, with your children. And children, drag your parents into it. And study Scripture. Use the catechism. Use a good. Use the the um, uh, the, Saint, the Baltimore Catechism. Saint Joseph Baltimore Catechism is a good example. Very accessible. It will teach you the principles of faith. You have to do that, so that you can become imbued by Scripture and your life becomes scriptural. Now, what we're going to do after we come back, I'm just going to give you a highlight. Of what we're going to do when we come back. We're going, to, we're going to look at the application of the literal sense on the narrative in Genesis, the creation narrative. Because this one is always a difficult one. It comes up all the time, especially these days between creationism and evolution and all that good stuff. Right? So we're going to deal with that briefly. I mean, that's something, the, the, the narrative in Genesis is something we can spend 10 lectures on. Easy. We're just going to have to spend 20 minutes. But at least I'll give you some highlights to help you deal with it. Then we're going to talk about the creation of Adam and Eve. How do we deal with that? We're going to do John chapter 6, from verse 26 and following. 6, verse 26 and following, on the bread of life. And then we're going to deal with a passage from the book of Revelation. But before, but, but in closing, I just want to spend a little bit of time on, on the book of Revelation. I want to put that in context of what we just said. Consider, for instance, Revelation 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. John has a vision of Christ and he describes it. And he, in it he said, His feet were like polished brass refined in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. Right? The sound of rushing water. How do we understand that? I hope that by now you see that we have to deal with the literal sense and the literal sense, in this case the proper literal sense of what the words are being conveyed to us. Bronze, rushing water, uh, polished brass, ref brass refined in the furnace, a voice like sound of rushing water. Now the, the literal sense is clear. All these words make sense. But of course their meaning is obscured because it's not the proper literal sense that we have to apply. It's the improper. Right? And how do we do that? Consider the expression rushing water. It occurs in one other place in all of scripture. Only one other place. In the book of Wisdom, chapter 17, verse 18. That's the only other place where you have the expression rushing water. And in that context, I recommend you read the whole book. By the way, every time there is a reference in Scripture, either in the New Testament or the Old, to a passage, it is never about that one verse. It, it's used as a pointer to pull the whole chapter, with the whole context, back into the memory of the people who are listening. All right? And Wisdom 17 is about judgment. The voice of the Lord is speaking like rushing water, and it's all about judgment. So that tells you what John has in mind when he hears the Lord speaking with a voice like rushing water. Now there are related expressions, for instance, such as many waters. And in many waters appear in Esther, Psalms, and Ezekiel. And in Revelation 17, and Revelation 17. Interestingly enough, you notice that many waters has dual meaning. Because in the Psalm 93.4, we see that the voice of the Lord is compared to rushing waters, so to many waters. It's the voice of the Lord speaking. Yet, in Psalm 144, David is asking the Lord to deliver him from evil, which is like rushing water. So it has dual meaning. You can't just deliver it. Uh, many water, not rushing water, I'm sorry. You can't infer immediately the meaning. It can even mean the voice of the Lord, or it can also mean the presence of evil. So you have to use, you have to be cautious when you apply it. Ezekiel 43.2 describes the coming of the Lord like rushing waters. Alright? Again in judgment. So when you look at all the references and you see the description of rushing water in those texts, you infer, well, of course, he cannot be referring to evil. The only possible meaning I can derive from it right now is that rushing water is the voice of judgment. Now, you add that to bronze, 
I don't have time to do the same thing for bronze right now. We'll do that later. You will see that bronze is always in reference to judgment. Where does it appear mostly? In the book of Elijah. Elijah shut down the heavens and the earth, and for three years it did not rain. And then he said, I will turn your heaven like bronze. So it's always in terms of judgments, you put the two together and you understand that the vision that the Lord giving him himself is that of one coming in judgment. And that's how you start unlocking the meaning. And that's how we're going to do it. But instead of doing it top down, taking one word and jumping all over, we're going to build it up, to, up you know, from bottom up. Alright? But I'd like you to read Genesis, the Genesis narrative, the creation of Adam and Eve, and John 6.26. I know I went over time tonight, but I... I I needed to cover this so we can start clean next time around when we hit the spiritual senses. So, as usual, we're going to end up with a word of prayer. Those of you who need to leave, may God be with you. And those of you who would like to stay for questions, we can take those right after. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.